0: Well, this is a new series that Pastor Jeff introduced last week, Extraordinary or Extraordinary. And we are, as he no doubt told you, uh, if you haven't watched that sermon on, if you weren't here last week and you haven't had a chance to go online and watch that sermon because we put them up every week, long about Tuesday or Wednesday, they're online. Uh, Please go back and do that because it talk about extraordinary. It was extraordinary and very helpful. But well, he talked about how we're going to be approaching this series by each of us who are assigned to preach, looking at someone who um, seems ordinary or there's something that's lesser known about them, one or the other of those two things or both, and to exemplify through their lives or bring forward through their lives the idea that they accomplished extraordinary things. And the whole idea is what he's already said today and then tried to illustrate through, uh, through Adrian's heart and what God was doing in her that Look, God, like E.V. Hill in my favorite sermon that I heard him preach, he's with the Lord now, but he preached this sermon that I've referred to here a couple times over the last 13 years, where he said, you're God's answer. People are praying, and his answer is going to be you. I heard him preach this when I was in seminary. Who hasn't heard... Who's heard of E.V. Hill or seen? He, he's one of the great preachers of modern Christian history, a uh, big African-American brother who pastored a church in South Central Los Angeles, Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church. And E.V. Hill, boy, oh boy, could that man preach. I once told my seminary professor that I heard this guy preach at the Dallas Seminary graduation. I didn't remember his name. Great big black preacher who preached as though he hated his voice and was trying to get even with it. (laughs) And my professor said, he's here next month. That's E.V. Hill. And he preached this series and uh, one of the sermons he preached was this, Your God's Answer. And he talked about how when God heard the prayers of people, his answer was, was people. He hears the prayers of Israel Deliver us. And God's answer is Moses. And he said something that's relevant to this series. Dr. Hill in his sermon said, When God chose humans to be the answers to the prayers of humans, he said, in the way only he could say it, he chose his worst option. And then he said, I'm going to mimic him, he said, birds would have been more faithful than that great big voice of his. And we're talking in this series about ordinary people that God prefers. In that same sermon series, Dr. Hill said, God loves to take a crooked stick and hit a straight ball with it. And there we are, crooked sticks that God wants to use. All the choices he has of all that he created, and as important as this is, and as dear to him as every prayer for deliverance and hope and strength is, pardon me, (coughs) his answer, when he looks left and looks right, is you. Ordinary, common, not quite as faithful as the birds of the air people. Now let me ask you a question. I'm going to start with a little story. Have you ever been driving and you think you've taken the correct route only to realize that you missed a turn and you are in a long journey now in the wrong direction, thinking you turned correctly, but you're just so off, just a little bit off that now the longer you drive, the farther away you get. It's kind of like missing the turn. You're gonna go for the day with the family at Sonoma Raceway, and you missed the turn left there at the light, and instead you went straight. You think, oh, I can just go back and catch that up lately. No, now you're on 37, you are forever trapped. And the longer you drive, the farther away you get. I mean, if that happens to you, ladies and gentlemen, you better forget the raceway and just plan on a day at Six Flags because that's the first time you're going to be able to get off that thing. You know what I'm talking about? Ever been on Highway 37 and had a truck jackknife in front of you? Yeah, you're going to visit for a long, long time with a lot of people that you'd never met before while they back the tow truck up from Mare Island coming down to, it's a crazy thing. Ever been driving like that? Think you turned correctly or just made a slight little mistake and the longer you drive, the farther away you get. Might as well just admit defeat. Put that first slide up there of that map because I want to tell you about my cousin Rocky. My cousin Rocky lives in Escalon. Look, I'm so bad at directions I can even get lost in ex- Escalon. Escalon. How bad do you have to be to be lost in Escalon? Good luck navigating this city. Let me show you where my, my cousin Rocky lives. Is this going to work up there? There we go. Okay, so my cousin Rocky, I come in like this, 99, over like this, and up Jack Tone Road, and my cousin Rocky lives somewhere up in here, right on this street right here. So I'm coming up. Every time I go there I seem to do this. I'm coming up to visit him and I want to make a right hand turn right there. But that's called five corners. And I'm forever making the right the turn in the right direction but going the wrong way and I catch this this street here and I'm w- and the longer I go the farther away I get cuz Rocky lives up here. You know what I'm talking about? And th- Who designed this intersection? And, and to make it worse, I think there's a train track in there somewhere. And it's like, this is like Escalon's version of Highway 37, except on your left and on your right are walnut and almond orchards. I mean, everywhere you go. Good luck getting back on track. You have one chance. You know, you have one chance on Highway 37 <coughs> if you miss that. You go ahead and you realize there's water on the left, water on the right. I missed the raceway. There's one little left-hand turn at a clump of trees. There's a farm back in there. Now there's a pheasant club, a gun club back. If you hurry up and you catch it in time, you can get in that left-hand turn lane. And then if you want to risk your life, you can actually make a U-turn and come on 37 and come back the other way. You need to become the raceway in order to make this thing in time. You have one chance if you miss the turn to Rocky's house because once you turn right, which is the correct direction to turn, but realize you turn too sharply and you're on the wrong street, going in the wrong direction. You have a split second to cut through a little wrecking yard parking lot right there. <laughs> you come in saying, oh no, that thing's on my left and it should have been on my right and I'm gonna miss the whole thing and you know, end up in Yosemite before I can turn around again. If you quickly turn left and cut through the parking lot, you can get back on track and hang out with my cousin, Rocky. But you only have a second to recover at the very last minute. It's either cut through the lot or continue in the wrong direction and seemingly never arrive. You know, we are ordinary people called into an extraordinary journey with an extraordinary God. Ordinary people called into, directed into, led into an extraordinary journey with an extraordinary God. God uses ordinary people like us to do, as Pastor Jeff said last week, to do mind-blowing, world-changing prisoner rescuing, local school changing things. But even though we're ordinary and the, the challenge is extraordinary, not all routes to extraordinary are straightforward. Sometimes, perhaps most of the time, there are wrong turns involved. Sometimes even turns in the correct direction, but at the wrong angle or the wrong trajectory. And today's example is one of those people that we might consider what has been referred to as not just ordinary, but even less than ordinary. Someone who turned too soon and was headed in the wrong direction. Today's example comes from someone whose name we don't even see recorded in history until the third or fourth century. Doesn't mean the name was incorrect, but we don't even see that name recorded in history until the third or fourth century but someone who did something extraordinary and left us something extraordinary. Today's example is from the thief on the cross who, history tells us, is named Demas. That's one of the the translations of his name. Saint Demas. In the town, San Demas, the San Demas Valley, for example, are named after Demas. He's on the cross with Jesus, we don't really even see his name recorded. We don't see Jesus recording uh, recorded as having called him by name, although he may have. He's not heralded, but man, is that a profound exchange on the cross. And it involves a last-minute cut through the parking lot to get going in the right direction again. Listen to these texts. Because all four gospels in some fashion record these thieves on the cross. Three out of the four record something of the conversation. Listen to Matthew. Two rebels were crucified with him. I don't have slides for these, just listen along. Matthew 27, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. That's important. Shaking their heads. Put yourself there. Here all of these insults, saying, oh, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Go ahead and save yourself. You were so mouthy. You had it all going on. What's going on now? Come on down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And these weren't statements of faith. These were insults. And then it says this, in the same way in Matthew... The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders even mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down for the cross, and then we'll believe in him, which they wouldn't have. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then this in Matthew. In the same way, The rebels, plural, who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Mark's record, Mark 15, they crucified two rebels with him. They were two rebels or two thieves, uh, two, uh, uh, two in opposition to the normal way of doing things. One on his right, one on his left. So Jesus is in the middle, as you know. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, so, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come on down from the cross, save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this so-called Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe And then this reference from Mark. And those crucified with him, i.e. the rebels, also heaped insults on him. John has a much less complete record. He just references in John 19. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others One on each side, and Jesus was in the middle. So there's Matthew, Mark, and to a lesser degree, John, all referencing the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus. But Luke gives us a bit of detail the others don't include. Doesn't mean that it didn't happen that way, it just means that Luke adds a little more that the others didn't include for some reason. Listen to Luke's account. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. This is in Luke 23. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. By the way, to crucify Jesus means simply to start the process of hanging him on the cross. It's the whole process. Crucify doesn't reference the actual death. It references the process that led to his death, the whole event. So they crucified him there along with the criminals one on his right the other on his left and Jesus said so now you have the first couple of words from the from Jesus while he was on the cross we have seven traditionally these are two here's one of them father forgive them for they do not know what they're doing and they divided up his clothes by casting lots it's important to hold on to the reference of those words, the context of those words. You have all of this ridicule. I mean, after all the things Jesus has already been through, this is not the first ridicule. Hey, Jesus! You're not so bad now, are you? <laughs> laughing at him. There he is, having been stripped of his clothes, embarrassed in front of his followers, who, by the way, most most of them, by the way, fled. They're off hiding. Not his mom not his closest friend, not some of the great women that were in his life. All this ridicule, dividing up his clothes, falsely accusing him, an illegal counsel to convict him, all of this subversive action to get this guy off our backs. And even on his left and on his right, other common criminals that were crucified with him. That means they've also probably been in prison with him, in jail with him, hauling their crosses up the hill with him. However, all that happened, they've had all this back and forth interaction, looking to the left, there's one. To the right, there's one. And what does Jesus say? Forgive them. Gasps for breath to be able to speak. And the words that come out of his mouth are, forgive them. They, they really have no idea what they're doing. Show mercy to them. Have mercy on them, Father. He says that. One of the criminals, and, and then they put that sign above him. He's king of the Jews. And then one of the criminals who, criminals who hung there hurled insults at him because they were both hurling insults at him, along with everybody else hurling insults at Jesus all this time. And the insult says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. That's what they've been seeing. But the other criminal rebuked his colleague in crime. Now, it's very clear from the previous Gospels that I've read that everybody was hurling insults, including the one who now says, hold on a minute. The other criminal rebuked him. He said, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then this. He turns to Jesus. Now, again, having been among those who were mocking Jesus before, sees something and has a complete change of heart. Cut through the parking lot and says, Jesus, and when you enter your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus answers him and says, I'll tell you what, I'll do better than remember you. You, whose name has not spoken even and recorded until the third or fourth century, I'll do better than remember you. This day, you will walk with me hand in hand in paradise. You are forgiven. And I think that is extraordinary. Look at the things that this thief encountered. What made this experience extraordinary, this example that Luke records for us. Because this is a thief who was arguably less than common, less than ordinary even. And he gives us this mind-blowing example of the life-changing power of an authentic, humble, legitimate encounter with Christ. And what do we see going on in this guy's life? Here's one thing we see. All of a sudden, this particular rebel, this thief, owns his stuff. Now that's extraordinary in and of itself. To meet people who own their junk, who say, look, here's a real assessment of who I am, and I'm responsible for it, and I'm going to do something about it. Nobody else is to blame. I chose Most, not all, but most of the things that are burdens on us, not all of them, but most of them are the result of our own choices. I wake up in the middle of the night sweating it over something that I'm facing now and I realize, oh, well, that's because I chose that. And I've chosen it three or four times in my 63 years. When am I ever going to learn? No one's responsible for that but me. I'm the one who authored this nightmare I've been having because I have to deal with this thing that's pressure on me right now. This is my choice to own your stuff. This guy owned his stuff. He says, we're hanging here because of what we did. We deserve to hang here. He's innocent. He owned his stuff. I'm getting ready to preach this, and I'm thinking, even this morning in the prayer room, I'm thinking, man, you can't, you, you don't always own your stuff. I'm praying silently this morning. I'm thinking, Art, you don't always own your stuff. I am praying silently this morning i am art you do not always own your stuff i do not own, but I'm owning now, I, but I don't always consistently own the idea that Jesus is not enough for me that I can't stand to be common. I cannot stand to not be the funniest guy in the crowd. When I go to a meeting and I'm sitting alone, it bothers me. Why is that? What is broken in me? The the, the theme for me that I've shared with you before over and over in my quiet times with Christ and my journey toward Jesus is always some version of God asking, Greco, when will I be enough for you? When will it be enough for you to have found your way into my historical memory banks and need nothing else? And my honest prayer is, I have no idea. I have no idea when that will be enough. There's some sort of a dominant insecurity in me that keeps rising up and perverting and poisoning things in my life. But this thief does what I wish I was better at in what all ordinary people who find their way to extraordinary eventually do. He owned his choices. I'm guilty. And he's not. And he looks to his colleague and says, and you're guilty too. Have you no shame? He owns his stuff. That's part of the journey to extraordinary but then this, in verse 41, right around in there in this exchange in Luke, having owned his stuff because he's been thinking for a while, and actually some, some commentators, some historians are saying, boy, you know what? We shouldn't exclude the possibility that this particular thief, before he was arrested, heard some of the teachings of Jesus. Before, he might be coming back to something he's been thinking about for a while and then chose not to go toward because he turned too sharply in the wrong direction. But his heart is softened. And I asked the question... What accounts for the difference? Obviously the Holy Spirit, but in terms of what this person is aware of and what he's thinking about in that moment, what accounts for the difference? Now there's a period of about six hours, five or six hours, between the time they hoisted Jesus on the cross and the time he gave up his life. So this is not a short exchange. Plus the time they may have spent together in jail and walking together and talking together. We don't know that that thief did not see some of the ways Jesus was treated when the crown of thorns was put on him, when he was ridiculed before the crucifixion actually began. We don't know. But how do you account for the change of heart? Because he softened his heart, which is also one of the steps in the journey toward extraordinary. A tender and broken and contrite heart, Lord you'll not despise. During the six hours between the launch of Christ's crucifixion and his death, this thief saw something. Now this is largely conjecture. But I'm wondering, what did he see? What did he hear that actually turned him? Some of the things he likely saw was his gambling for Christ's clothes, Maybe a weeping mom, a loyal friend at the cross. If, he, if this thief did sort of fall the crowds a little bit, and at least from a distance hear some of the teachings of Jesus during the years beforehand, he heard some of the people yelling praises and saw some of the healings. We don't know, but maybe. And he's thinking, well, what a difference between the ticket was hard to get back then, but they're giving them away now. To see Jesus. But he sees a loyal friend at the cross. An eclipse of the sun. As some of the events that happened on that day Jesus was crucified. But what stands out to me, and again, I'm guessing here. You go ahead and use your holy imagination. But I know, I know he hears those words. Father, forgive them but they don't understand what they're doing. They're like kindergartners running around mocking somebody that dressed funny, and they don't understand that when they become adults, they'll wish they hadn't done that. Have mercy on them. I wonder if that thief who has a change of heart, who softens his heart, wasn't taken by the deep level of mercy the expanse of mercy how wide open Christ's arms are not only by force literally but by desire in his own heart to receive anyone who will show him the slightest expression of faith love and longing and i wonder if it isn't that in part or that that causes that thief to say no more mocking coming from my lips he's innocent and look what he does he forgives how do you do that I wonder if he could forgive me no he couldn't but maybe no he couldn't and you got this little thing in this thief's heart maybe But he doesn't even dare say, would you forgive me too? Do you include me in that statement? The best he can do is say, when you enter your kingdom. Maybe once in a while, just remember me. And Jesus says, I'll do more than remember you. You'll be there with me today. This change of heart is critical, a softening of the heart. In Romans 2, we're told God's kindness, his forbearance, and his patience are intended, designed to lead us to repentance, to owning our stuff, softening our heart. And that's what, exactly what happens here. He says, this guy's innocent. He doesn't deserve what he's getting, and how does he spend his time on the cross? Praying for us. And he allowed himself to be one. <laughs> he owned his stuff. He softened his heart. And then, as I've already referenced, he realized at some point in that whole exchange, oh my goodness, I've turned in the right direction, but I got on the wrong road. And the longer I stay on this road, the farther away I'm going to get. And he cuts through the parking lot. At the last minute, he cuts over. He realized he had made some bad decisions, and he asks Jesus, however tentatively, for a second chance. Probably not, but is there room for me? Is sort of in his request that Jesus remember him. And what does he receive? He receives what Christ always longs to give. Always, without restriction, without hesitation, without a second thought, regardless of what you've done to not deserve it, regardless of what we've done to uh, deserve whatever punishment it is we think we deserve or whatever we're getting, He longs to offer mercy, 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 mercy. Why, of course, there's room for you in my heart. Of course. Cut across. The longer you stay going that direction, the farther away from me you get. Cut across the lot, man. Cut across. Even if the light's red, run it. I saw our worship leader, Michael, run the red light this morning, so I had to make a little reference. (laughs) Right in front of me. Hang on a cross for that, I tell you. Run it. Look. Some folks are saying, I, I, I've heard this message. I've been coming here, our head friends tell me, I've heard this message, and I think there's some validity to it. Okay, it makes a little sense. But I've never quite been ready to grasp that whole idea of me having sinned, that God forgives through Jesus Christ. Jesus is a great philosopher, and his way of life is better than the way of life we were living. I can get into that, but this finding new life in Christ by asking him to remember me and forgive my sin and give me new life and let's start over and you become my savior, whatever the language is you want to attach to it. I just, for some reason, haven't been ready to go there. But maybe today you are ready to go there. Maybe today's the day you're saying, why would I stay on this road when it doesn't lead me to Rocky's house? There's my chance to cut over. I want to go to the raceway, not Six Flags. May I encourage you to make a decision to ask Jesus, hey, is there room for even me in your heart while I'm on parole? Given what I just did in my family and my marriage, or to my kids, or to my friend, or to myself this last week, Is there hope for me? Could you even love this wreck? As often as I've rejected you and denied you, as much pride as I find raging in me, as difficult as it will be to practice humility and to serve others, and all these, is there room for me? Because I guarantee you, just like I can guarantee you that we're here in this room right now, Christ's answer has not changed. You're not so ordinary, so irrelevant, that he doesn't want to do something spectacular in you. He will say, come. In 1975, I had heard the message of Jesus. I knew that it was true. I'd heard it all my life. I knew that I was convinced it was true but I was also unconvinced that I wanted to live according to it. And then one day while I was working on my dump truck with, Axle grease up to my elbows, sitting on a five-gallon bucket that I had turned upside down to fix that broken axle. Of all times, I just wasn't ready before, but on that day and that moment, all by myself in our truck yard over by University of Santa Clara on a rainy day, for whatever reason, I hadn't been listening to a radio preacher or reading my Bible or anything that morning. I'd been dreading the fact that I had a broken axle and needed to get it fixed today so that I could show up with my truck for work on Monday. That's what I was doing on that day, and sitting there that day, all of a sudden the thought comes to me Hey, I love you. When are you going to sell out to what you really believe is true? That's my thought. God starts speaking to me, and right there on that day, I said, Now, now I will. And I prayed. Lord, I want to pray the prayer that I think I remember from when I was a kid in church. I don't even know if it's the right words. I don't know what else to do. But please, forgive my sins and become my Savior. The, the, the classic language. And within, within five minutes of that sincere prayer, my brother showed up to have me help him cut some holes in his back window for, a, for a speakers in his car, dropped the knife hit me in the head when I was laying upside down in his trunk and I was cussing like a sailor And within five minutes. And right then I thought, whoa, I think I have to stop doing that. It doesn't seem right to me, but there's a transformation because of faith. There can be a transformation. And the power of the Holy Spirit will be deposited in you and the things you thought were impossible to do the life you thought was impossible to live, you watch. You will live it. Cut across the lot, folks. If you're going in the wrong direction, change directions. In her time, she was quite well known, quite popular. Many of us, most of us, haven't heard of Marganita Tulaski, but She was a 20th century English journalist, a famous novelist, well-known radio personality, uh, on the BBC version of What's My Line? Remember the TV show, What's My Line? Well, she was on the BBC radio version of that. She's identified as the most prolific contributor to the Oxford English Dictionary, with over 250,000 quotations cited that she offered in that dictionary. She was also an outspoken and persuasive atheist. But not long before she died in 1988 in a moment of surprising candor on television and I don't know if this was a moment a, a statement offered the statement of a cynic or the statement of someone with regret nonetheless she said it. She said what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. We do have someone to forgive us who says through his own pain from the cross this day, if you own your stuff and soften your heart and cut through the lot and ask me, I'll remember you. And the extraordinary thing is this, that Demas, this ordinary or less than ordinary person because of his experience and the record of it on the cross, offers to us one of the most complete and powerful and amazing statements of the scope of the mercy of God that we have in the whole Bible. Even me, Lord especially you, yes, I will remember you. Let's pray. And maybe some of you will pray a prayer like the one I prayed in January of 1975 because this is your time. A prayer like this, and if it is your prayer, pray it silently. Lord, don't know everything, don't know much, but something's going on in my heart. That tells me you want me. So, will you please forgive me? And will you please own me and call me your child? Become my Savior, my rescuer, because I receive you, not just your teachings, but I receive your love. And I enter into a relationship with you right now, depending upon you to strengthen it, make it possible. This day, right now, there's no question. I become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And others are here who might be experiencing a version of that sort of lifestyle where I follow you, Lord, but I turn too sharply or I've gotten going in the wrong direction and I want to get back going in the right direction. It's really tough to find a way back. But I'm gonna cut through the parking lot and get back car- parking lot and get back on track. I already have known you, but I think I think I've made some choices that have tilted things and got me off the path. Thanks for receiving me back onto the path. Would you keep giving me insight and strength to drive in the right direction, to walk in the right direction? I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.